Well, good morning. As uh, you heard uh, Pastor David say during announcements, and if you noticed uh, with the scripture change, um, next week we'll be uh, continuing our Hebrews sermon series, focusing on the person of Jesus Christ as we prepare for Lent and Easter, as we uh, look at the the events of who Jesus is and, and, and the impact of his death and resurrection upon our lives. Uh, giving, uh, given that uh, this Sunday is the first Sunday after Lent, uh, it's appropriate that we uh, begin this season by focusing on the cross. Uh, after all, that's what brings us redemption. That's what Jesus' mission on earth was. And that's what uh, he did in the few weeks leading up to Easter was prepared for the cross. In August of 2003, the Church of the Holy Cross in New York City was broken into twice in the same month. Uh, the first time the thieves broke in and, and stole a metal money box that was filled with some cash and some checks, but not a, a whole lot of, of expense was lost. Uh, three weeks later, vandals escaped with something that was much, much more valuable that time, though. They unbolted a four-foot-long, 200-pound plaster Jesus from a meditation area, taking a statue of Christ with them, but leaving the wooden cross on the wall behind. The church caretaker, David St. James, confessed his bewilderment at this. They just decided we're going to leave the cross and take Jesus. We don't know why they took just him. We figure if you want Jesus, you have to take the cross along with him. It was a bit embarrassing to admit this, but I understand the choice of those thieves. I, I like the figure of Jesus Christ. I like the clever and compassionate way that he treats people in the, in the Gospels. I like the admire the, the clarity of and the profundity of his, of his teaching. I absolutely love his parables and, and stories. He's a master storyteller. The character of Christ is the ideal toward which I want to grow as a, as a person. The whole world, in my opinion, would be better if, if more people lived like Jesus Christ. And according to almost study I have ever read, millions of people agree with me. Even those who have hardly ever darkened the door of a church or struggle with questions about God, they all are quite attracted to the person of and figure of Jesus Christ. But as for the cross, that's a little different story. I mean, we love that Jesus Christ died for us. We love that he died for our sins, that he took our place on the cross and did for us what we could not do ourselves, atonement and right standing with God. But when it comes to following Jesus, when we ask the question that's so popular a few years back, what would Jesus do? We'd prefer to avoid the pain and the suffering and humiliation and, and the, the hardship and the sacrifice of the cross. We'd like Jesus, thank you very much, but the cross, well, we'd rather leave it behind. Now, that's not an unusual or original response. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to uh, the Gospel according to Mark, the passage <coughs> excuse me, that uh, Tracy read just a minute ago, chapter 8, looking again at verse 27. It says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Now, obviously, Jesus has been creating quite a stir in the countryside in Israel. 
Um, so far in the Gospel according to Mark, in the first eight and a half chapters, he's performed a couple of exorcisms. He has brought a, a dead girl back to life. He's healed a, a leper and a paralyzed man. He's wowed the crowds with his teaching. He's given sight and speech to a blind and mute man. And he's fed crowds of 5,000 and 4,000 people on separate occasions. So no doubt people everywhere are buzz with questions of who exactly is this guy, this humble carpenter's son from Nazareth. And so Jesus, in a sense, asks his disciples, what's the word on the street? What are they, what are they saying about me? Who do they say I am? Who do they think I am? And so the disciples, they, they report in. They say, well, some think you're John the Baptist, who was, of course, Jesus' cousin, a prophet himself. Uh, some say uh, who had been beheaded by King Herod, come back. Uh, some say uh, you're Elijah, also come back from the dead, the Old Testament prophet who was probably the most important prophet to the Jewish people. But they said, I think we can all agree, people all think you're some sort of prophet or messenger from God. But Jesus doesn't allow them to stay uninvolved from the question himself. He wants to know what they think. Who do you say I am, he asked. What about you? And Peter, usually the first one to speak up, says, you are the Christ. And Peter passes with flying colors. He gets an A-plus on that question. He knows who Jesus Christ is. He is the Christ. And, of course, Christ means anointed one, chosen one, the Messiah. So when we talk about Jesus Christ, it means literally Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the chosen one, Jesus the anointed one. And when Peter said that as a Jewish man, there was all sorts of connotations and meaning behind that. The Jewish people, you see, had been waiting for the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one, to come for about 500 years. 500 years of praying, of waiting, of hoping, of struggling, of getting discouraged, wondering if he would ever come, but stubbornly believing and waiting, waiting for him to come and, and lead them out from under the thumb of the Roman Empire and into a new era of freedom and blessing and national glory. That's what they wanted. That's what Peter thought that the Messiah was going to do, what Jesus was going to do. Peter got it right on Jesus' identity, but he got it wrong on Jesus' mission. Jesus says this, He, Jesus, verse 31, then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. So Jesus tells Peter, I'm not going to be the kind of Messiah that you want and that people expect. In fact, the movers and shakers in our world are going to reject me. They're going to persecute me. And in the end, they're going to kill me. And when Peter hears this, he doesn't want to have anything to do with it. In verse 32, he spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Then Jesus responds, verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Pretty harsh response to Peter, one of his favorite disciples, a man who had just said he was the Messiah, who had given up everything to follow him. Why does Peter get such a strong response? 
But we get, um, we get an explanation in Luke chapter 4. It will be up on the screen behind you if you'd like, but if you want, it's just a few pages over in Luke chapter 4. I'm going to read a few verses out of that passage. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's just been baptized, and he's getting ready to start his ministry. Luke 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan where he'd been baptized, of course, and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it's not, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. So what's happening here is, is of course, Jesus has been fasting. And in his human nature, he would have been susceptible. He's had nothing to eat for 40 days. He's got to be starving. And Jesus has the power in a few days, a few months, to feed 5,000 people with just a few fish and bread. What would be the harm for him in attending to his own personal comfort? Take a few stones and make a couple bagels. Jesus, when he was in heaven, ruled over all, was acknowledged by the angels as king. Now as a human being, he's a, a poor carpenter's son. What would be the harm in having a little bit of power? After all, it was his world. He created it. He rules over it. It would be nice to have people recognize his authority. Jesus in heaven was worshipped and admired and served by thousands of angels. What would be the harm in showing people who, was, who he was in a spectacular display of shock and awe? But that was not part of his plan, not part of God's mission for him. And so Jesus resists each temptation by quoting Scripture. And now, here back in Mark 8, Jesus is tempted again. In essence, this is the devil's opportune time. And so Satan tries to get to Jesus through Peter's rebuke. You can kind of hear Peter saying, what do you mean you're going to get killed? That's crazy talk, Jesus. May that never be. And Jesus responds to him, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And then Jesus shows him and tells him what the things of God are and the things of men in verse 34. He calls them together, the crowd and the disciples, and he says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Jesus, in this passage, in, this, in these verses, those verses, verse 34 and 35, Jesus brings Peter to, to a crossroads, 
to a place where he has to make a decision. And he does the same for the disciples and the crowd. He does it for us today as well. Give up your life, follow me, and your life will be saved. Or keep your life, follow your own way, and your life will be lost. Now, what does it mean to deny yourself? To do what Jesus asks us to do, to take up the, the cross, to give up our life, to follow him, to die to self, to deny self. Well, it means to, to, on a daily basis, even when it seems contrary to what we want, and even when it may, make not, may not make much sense in the world's eyes, that we are to do what God wants us to do. To put others' needs before our own. To choose his priorities, his values. You see, there's two ways that we can run our lives. We can do it our way, or we can do it God's way. Think of it this way, a little bit of an analogy. It's like uh, when you get married. I, got, I had to make a decision when I got married. I'm no longer going to live like a single man. You know, I, no longer I'm going to hopefully um, uh, seek my own desires and wills and choose my preferences. I, I have to, from that moment forward, on a daily basis, choose I'm not going to act like a single guy. And what do single guys do? Typically, they're, they can be a little self-centered, can't we? And what happens in a marriage when a person continues to be acting like a single person? They get into problems. All sorts of problems in their marriages if they act like single people again. When we give our, our commitment to Jesus Christ, we make a choice to no longer act as a single person in a sense spiritually. We're not on our own anymore. It's not our desires, not our will. It's God's will. And on a daily basis, we need to make choices to live as a person who follows Jesus Christ. And if we don't, we're going to encounter a lot of guilt and heartache and frustration and, and an unfruitful living for Him. To take up our cross means that we need to be more concerned about being conformed to Christ's likeness than being comfortable. To be more concerned about seeking the challenges Christ has for us than being convenient. A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite authors, uh, was the man who um, wrote a lot in the 1940s and 50s. And, and this passage talks about the tendency that we have to avoid taking up the cross and following Jesus. He writes, Everyone is just delighted that Jesus has done all of the suffering, all of the sorrowing, all of the dying. And then St. Augustine in the 5th century A.D. writes, It is necessary to die, but nobody wants to. We want to reach the kingdom of God, but we don't want to travel by way of death. And yet there stands necessity saying, This way, please. You know, following Christ can be the most difficult thing you will do in your life. But it can also and also will be the most rewarding and fulfilling and joyful thing you can do in your life. John 10.10 says, I have come, Jesus says, that you may have life and life to the fullest. What Jesus asks us to give up far, far outweighs what he gives us. But we will not know that, we will not know that abundant life until we surrender everything to him. Janelle Guzman McMillan discovered that. She was the last person to be trapped um, uh, in the Twin Towers, who was rescued alive after 9-11. She lay in the rubble trapped for 27 hours before a firefighter found her. She was a 30-year-old single mother 
who had only been on the job for nine months when the terrorist attacked, and her job was no longer on the 64th floor. Her job was simply trying to stay alive. As McMillan would later tell reporters, her head was pinned between two pieces of concrete, her legs sandwiched by pieces of a stairway, her toes had gone numb many hours ago, her right hand was pinned under her leg, only her left hand was she able to move. She had been raised in the Christian faith in Trinidad, but when she moved to the U.S., she had fallen away. But now in the rubble, as her life flashed before her eyes, her thoughts turned to God. Thinking of her 14-year-old daughter, she prayed that her body would be found so that she could have closure at the burial, at a funeral. After a while, she became a little bit more bold, and she revised her prayer and asked that the Lord would allow her to die in the hospital so that her daughter and she could have one last conversation. But as faith seemed to bubble up in her heart, she boldly began to ask God to help her survive. She says, I was praying to God, God, please save my life. Give me a second chance. I promise I will change my life. I give you my life, and I will do your will. And she says she prayed that prayer over and over. God, please save my life. Give me a second chance. I promise I will change my life. I give you my life, and I will do your will. She has no idea how many times she said that in those hours. But eventually she was rescued by firefighters. Now, I don't tell this story to say that if we pray the right prayer, God will always save us from danger. And I don't tell this story to say that we can bargain with God and make him do what we want. But I do tell this story because if we want to save our lives, as Jesus says in Mark 8, then we've got to be willing to give it back to him, to surrender it, to give it up. All of it. You know, when I was a kid, my dad used to drag us along to farm auctions. And before he would go, one of the things he would always do, he would kind of set the price. This is how much money I'm going to spend. I won't go above this, this, this limit, which is, a, which is a great philosophy when you go to an auction. But it's a terrible philosophy for following Jesus Christ. The great danger that we can have sometimes when we follow Christ is we establish an upper limit price. I'll follow you, Jesus, to a point. I will serve you to a point. I'll give to a point. I'll let you change my life to a point. But that's it. Jesus, change my marriage, but not how I do business. You can have my music, but not my habits. You can have these areas of my life, but I want to hang on to these. You can have Sundays and Wednesdays, but I'll keep the rest of the time for myself. Jesus, I believe in you. Please save me. But there's a limit. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The way I read that means there are no strings attached. There's holding, no holding anything back. There are no upper price limits. We can't, like the thieves... Say, I'll take Jesus, but the cross, I'll leave that behind. We can't do that. Jesus wants our whole life, all of it, but he won't take it. We have to give it to him. We have to surrender it. We have to give it back. You know, as, as we get into the Lenten season, this is an a, a opportune time for us as individuals and as a church to really step back and reflect upon a couple of things. One is, 
what Jesus Christ gave up for us. He set no upper limit. He gave it all up willingly for us. He could have turned those stones into bread. He could have commanded angels to come and and rescue him and minister to him. But he held nothing back. He had no upper limits. He calls us to do the same. He calls us to, to reflect upon what he's done for us and then to ask him what we can do for him. We need to ask ourselves, have I surrendered it all to Christ? Is he truly in charge? Have I given him my children? Have I given him my relationships? Have I given him my time, my money, my attitudes, my work, my habits, my hobbies? Jesus is crystal clear. He says, come to me. Take up your cross. Follow me. Give up your life. And you will gain it. In this passage, Jesus brings us to a crossroads. He asks us, will you give up your life and follow me? I close with a quote from one of the best-known American poems. I came to a fork in the road, and I took the road less traveled. And it has made all the difference. That's what Jesus is asking us to do. We come to a fork in the road. Will I follow my way or his way? Jesus promises us if we take the road less traveled, which is his way, that it will make all the difference now and in eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and God, we just want to say that we are grateful for your love and your your plan of redemption. Father, we thank you for Jesus who came into this world fully God, fully man, who resisted the temptation to set limits, to say, I'll do this, but that's far enough. He was hungry. He was deserted. He was by himself. He endured incredible physical pain and emotional anguish. He was misunderstood even by his own disciples. And yet he stayed true to his mission to lay down his life so that we can have life. Father, help us to be people increasingly who knows what it means to give up our lives. Lord, we pray that you give us opportunities to grow, to sacrifice, to surrender, to give, to endure, to persevere. Stretch us, Father. Grow us increasingly that like Jesus, we would have no upper limits. We love you. Help us to become the people you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.